to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 84. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're talking about Black apologetics with Lisa Fields, who is the founder of the Jude 3 Project, whose mission is to help the Christian community know what they believe and why they believe it, distinctive in its strong emphasis in equipping those of African descent in the United States and abroad. Team members from the two cities on the episode include Dr. Amber Bowen, Reverend Daniel Parham, Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So we've had quite a few conversations about apologetics already in this series. What were some of the distinctive things that really came out in this conversation with Lisa? What I appreciate about Lisa unfolding about apologetics is uh, it, it tends to be a world that um, predominantly uh, is voiced within the white evangelical, evangelical community. Uh, but that is not to say that uh, there, there is an active and abiding apologetic in the Black church experience. Uh, and really her mission and cause is to bring some of the dominant areas of need for an apologetic voice to the black community through Jude 3. And I think she did a great job of helping us to synthesize how do we engage from that space outward towards the black community in a way that says that you are equally a part uh, of the space that is apologetics and voice um, should contribute uh, to a world that might be dominated um, you know, in, in white evangelical spaces. In, in our conversation, one of the particular ways that she described that the Black community can also give to the broader apologetical project in a unique way is through conversations on the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. And this is a really popular topic and a really much needed topic in apologetics. But there's unique ways that the Black community can speak to that on the basis of their unique experiences of suffering. And I think reframe that conversation in a way that is really helpful in a much broader space. I really enjoyed the emphasis on relationality as uh, a significant part of how the Jude 3 Project does apologetics. Uh, Lisa often talked about um, the, the nature of not just needing to communicate information, but uh, wanting to do so in relationship, uh, to not have people standing at lecterns facing off against each other, but sitting down for a conversation. And I think that's an area that is, uh, and not just in apologetics, but an area that is um, very sorely lacking in our society more broadly these days, uh, but is perhaps exemplified quite often in the apologetic space. And so I really appreciate that emphasis of hers. And here's our conversation with Lisa Fields. Thank you so much for joining us, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So how about we begin by hearing a little bit about Jude 3 and the work that you all do? Yeah, so Jude 3 is a Christian apologetics organization dedicated to helping Black Christians know what they believe and why. And uh, we started back in 2014. And I don't know if you want to hear a little bit of my journey to start. Okay, so uh, people always ask me how I got into apologetics, and it really is a, a accident. 
um, I guess there's no uh, accidents in Providence, but um, <laughs> I was uh, determined to be a stockbroker. That was my goal from fifth grade. We played the stock market game in fifth grade. And so I wanted to be a stockbroker from that time. And then I got to college. I was an investment finance major and took a New Testament class just as an elective, um, thinking it would be an easy A in like Sunday school. But at my university, University of North Florida, it wasn't a Christian school. So it was not like Sunday school. And I did not anticipate the first day of class my professor saying, I'm going to change everything you thought you knew about Jesus. And boy, did she challenge my faith um, in that regard. And our textbook was Mark Ehrman. If y'all know anything about apologetics and just New Testament criticism, you know, Bart Ehrman is not a friend of the authority of scripture. Um, he's, he seeks to undermine it through, through his methods and his understanding of the text. And so that was my first time being introduced to textual criticism. My father saw me struggling. He introduced me to apologetics that helped me navigate that space. And as I got deeper and deeper into apologetics, I uh, didn't see many people that looked like me. And so while it was helpful, I thought there was some considerable gaps in communication and subjects that, that needed to be filled. So end up switching my major from investment finance to religious studies and communications. Um, later went into banking after I graduated because when you graduate, you just need a job. And that was the first job I got as a banker. Um, then went into mutual funds uh, at Merrill and then felt the Lord calling me to go uh, to, to seminary. Ended up at the most conservative place you could land, Liberty University, uh, quit my job went to move to Lynchburg, Virginia, um, and studied there to get my MDF. So I had a, a very much pendulum swing of, of thinking through the text uh, from UNF to Liberty. Um, and then started Jude 3 the last year of, of seminary. Um, we had our first event July 12, um, 2014. So that's a little bit of my journey. It has grown tremendously and um, I'm, enjoying the ride and and looking forward to see what God does with it. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you did not see faces similar to your own. Uh, and in the perspective of, I guess, Black culture, Black church culture, uh, at least from my perspective, I, I didn't have any context for the discipline of apologetics, uh, even though I, I think that our tradition um, speaks to apologetics in, in, in maybe different ways. How did you see any similarities between the experience of, of Black Christians and the space that is apologetics that may not predominantly be American in nature? Mm -hmm. Good question. Um, so I didn't know about apologetics similarly to you until I uh, went to college. I'm a PK, so I've been in church my whole life. Uh, um, and so because I guess the questions were different, it just never came up in church in the same way. So when you think about classical apologetics, it's proving the existence of God for the most part. For most of it is trying to prove that God exists. In the Black context, most people believe that God exists. The rise of Black atheism is very slow, and it's just not a lot of people who buy into it. And so therefore, the way uh apologetics is packaged in the U.S. more broadly just doesn't appeal because it's not relevant. And so our churches, Black churches, have really been passionate about defending the exclusivity of Christ, defending the authority of scripture. They just never said this is apologetics. They just said this is how we 
we believe this is our view of the faith and this is how we share it with others and this is the defense we make and so um i hope that answers your question um but that's kind of how i have how i would think through that and as you were navigating going through seminary and learning apologetics through popular authors and books and texts that are germane to that discipline or that are recognized in that discipline in particular, which is largely, as you said, there's, there's, it's predominantly a white American, U.S., Anglo-Saxon context dealing with questions that are more relevant to that context. What kind of work did you have to do to sort of translate or to reimagine or appropriate what you were learning in this discipline and then think about what it would look like in your own context. Can you give some examples of topics and issues that are really important, particularly in the Black Christian experience? Yeah, I think the biggest topic is this Christianity, white man's religion. I mean, that comes up, I mean, almost every day for us uh, <laughs> because all you see is white leaders over and over again, being the most of the talking heads around faith, the idea is what you see the, between the iconography and the talking heads, that becomes the makeup of Christianity. And then people stop seeing themselves in the people who are the most dominant voices in culture. And so uh, that, and also as far as like strategies, I know you, you talked about that a little bit in your question. Early on, we were really intentional about just interviewing people apologists, black and white, who just, we just changed the questions that they were answering. And so we just said, hey, we want you to talk about uh, something else, <laughs> you know, uh, that relates to our community. And so I think that's one of the strategies early on Then we developed the curriculum through Eyes of Color um, that's been popular. We created uh, events that help equip um, our people. And then some of the similar, the topics that white evangelicals cover, they just don't make it relatable enough for our communities. So when we did our first Courageous Conversations, the first, uh, all most of the topics were things that white evangelicals cover all the time, the authority of scripture, exclusivity of Christ. It's just that we don't see ourselves represented in those conversations. And so I wanted to make sure we had our, we had Black PhDs represented to talk, to speak to those issues that when you Google, you're always going to see white, white men for the most part. So now when you Google and you, you look under Jew 3, you're going to see Black people speaking to these um, everyday apologetic issues that the culture faces. Thanks, Lisa. Um, so I, I grew up in, in Australia. Uh, the, my first uh, knowledge of apologetics was uh, through old ska music and mm -hmm. and ska music name checking it and, and name dropping apologetics but with no, no real understanding of, of what that actually meant um and yet the a lot of the approach to apologetics that, that we that we find uh not just here in australia but uh, across the world it focuses as you've said on on true belief and yet uh a few times that you've said you know it's really for for the purpose of the June three project is, is really about uh, showing people uh, that there are people like them who are who are engaged with their faith, who are engaged in in, in discussing the and and understanding the these these topics. I'm interested in uh, that nature of uh, community outside of the the predominantly white space which apologetics is done in. I mean, what my 
area of specialty is in the fourth gospel in the gospel of John and belief, the pistuo uh, is a big part of the fourth gospel. And yet, and a, a colleague down here in Australia just did his PhD where he, he comes up with five different ways that belief is worked out in the fourth gospel, uh, and, and including, you know, uh, remaining and, and being in a community and, and, and part of that and social aspects of that. And yet at the same time, we we're both at a conference where we were presenting on the, on the fourth gospel and the paper right after his was a guy not, uh, basically saying, no, uh, but there's not, nothing to belief except for cognitive assent. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and I'm interested in your perspective of, of uh, how does that uh, work in a non-white context, in an African-American context, um, where uh, social relations are quite commonly more prized than, um, than, the, than the white context uh, that, that we find out. And, and I include myself in that in, in, a, in Australia. Um, it is highly individualistic. But yeah, that we find ourselves in uh, and the apologetics conversations often find themselves in. Um, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think belief can be the initial form of belief can be an individual experience, but it only can be strengthened. It's more, it's strengthened better in community. And so the communal aspect belief is huge because God is in himself a community. Uh, the triune God, uh, but he makes us for community, that we are the body of believers, that um, every every part is significant and we learn from every part of the body. So we can't be who God has designed us to be and grow in faith without other people. And so I think an apologetics community is huge. When I went off to, when I was thinking about seminaries and I first initial was going to do online, one of my mentors said to me, I want you to do residential because I think theology is best done in community. And you being able to bounce what you're coming up with off of an, another person is only going to help strengthen your arguments and strengthen your belief. And so I think that in apologetics, apologetics as we grow and, and we want to be a, a defender of the faith where it's best done with other people because people are going to help sharpen, sharpen your ideas, sharpen your faith and, and those things. Yeah, I have a question about method and, and how you've sort of developed that in Jude 3 in connection with other scholars. Um, one thing that we've talked about in this series that's pretty characteristic of like white evangelical apologetics in particular is it's very militant. Um, we, we call it like having epistemic standoffs, <laughs> um, where it's a dual it's like battle rap. It, it, it's like, right? That would be more fun, I think actually. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's, it's like a duel and it's We're, we're going to see whose ideology stands up and whose is stronger and who pins someone into a corner, you know? And so I know in apologetics classes that I took in seminary, it's like, if you just say this, then the atheist is going to be totally tongue tied and, you know, they're going to have to assent to what you're saying. So it is very militant. And we talk about verses like being prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have in, in these, these very militaristic kinds of ways, um, which I think is probably a, a cultural projection in many ways. I'm curious though, what are some of the methods that you guys have cultivated going about? Uh, what are some methods that even probably ar arise from the black church context that you've brought into the way that you're approaching and building your apologetical project? Mm -hmm. That's, that's a great question. Uh, I, I lament 
that apologetics is is viewed that way because it is true. Like most pastors don't even want apologetics in their churches because it makes little monsters out of people <laughs> where they get all this information and they they want to argue. And that's why I always say more conversations, less debates, because I believe that we need to reframe um, how people view it. Because if you think about First Peter 3, First Peter is talking about, especially in the third chapter, how you treat your neighbors, how you treat your spouse, and then your treatment of other people should lead people to question your hope. Like, what, what are you, what are you connected to that makes you treat even your enemies good? You know, and so uh, it has to do more with the embodiment of the message that leads people to question than you just shooting off arguments at people. And I think that's what people miss. They just jump to 315 and not look at the whole passage. It's like, no, do you live in a way that anybody asks you, why is your life different? Like most people that are argumentative, nobody wants to ask them why their life is different because they want to get as far away from them as possible. And so um, I, I just, I think one of the ways in which we help people reimagine is framing our, our conversations as that conversations. We're not trying to debate. Even for our conference, we take leading progressives and um, conservatives and we put them in conversation. And then we even set the tape, the, the, uh, the panel up differently where we're facing each other and we're looking at each other because that even changes the tone. You know, when you watch some of these debates at universities, you're facing an audience telling your argument and you never look at the person. Um, you're just like reading and then you're responding and they're writing out like, but versus a conversation where you're getting to look somebody in the eye, that's going to bring a level of humility. And you also see their humanity. Like they're just not an argument, they're a person. And so I think, you know, reminding people there is a person behind the person, behind the argument, and they have experiences and people who doubt have deep traumas. And so understanding that like this person isn't just bringing a doubt about God that you need to destroy. This person is bringing trauma. They've been bringing church hurt. They made disappointment around prayers that God didn't answer. Maybe he didn't heal their mom when they prayed or he didn't rescue them from some kind of sexual trauma. You know, all of these things. So if you're just looking to say, like, let me defeat your argument, you're really not seeing the person. And I remind people like these are people who are hurt. And usually people get to doubts because they're, it's rooted in trauma. And if you understand that, you won't go for the juggler. You'll ask more questions to see, like, what's the deeper root behind, behind your traumatic experiences? So I think more listening, um, asking thoughtful questions as you're listening, being an active listener, um, and training people to do that in addition to helping them be able to intellectually engage people on faith, I think it's key to reimagining apologetics in this culture. That's so good. I love what you said about first Peter too, because really it's talking about how do you live faithfully as Christians in circumstances that are anything but ideal. They're, yes. they're really hostile, terrible circumstances. Um, and so the way that you're living honorably and the way that you are um, loving other people in those circumstances is su it, like, that is Peter's answer for how to live faithfully. <laughs> like that is his apologetic, you know? Which brings me to this question of, um, for a long time, apologetics in, in the U.S., particularly white evangelical context, has focused a lot about um, atheism. We, we've asked this question essentially to most of the people um, who have joined us for this series, but it's it's been about 
how do you combat skepticism? How do you combat mm-hmm. the atheism of skepticism? But really what we're encountering now, um, most certainly even in white spaces too, is an atheism of suspicion or maybe just suspicion, maybe not even atheism, but just this question of is Christianity just? So it's not Mm -hmm. so much, can you give me more proofs for the resurrection of Jesus? And then maybe I can believe Mm -hmm. it's, I don't know. I'm not convinced that Christianity is not a deeply misogynistic religion, mm-hmm. um, that it's not just some white man's religion, those sorts of things. And, and those are the very issues that you're tackling, which shows me that what you're doing is really on the cutting edge of the apologetical movement right now. Um, but I'm wondering if you can speak to that, um, in terms of how you engage this suspicion and how you engage those kinds of questions about if Christianity is a just religion. Mm-hmm. That's a good question because I think that's where most people are in Gen Z millennials. Is Christianity just, is it beneficial? Should we even buy into it? Is it helping anything? And I think the first approach with that is always ask like, why do you think it's not just? What what experience led you to um, unjust views? And because oftentimes people's view um, that uh, Christianity isn't just, is rooted in real experiences around God. And they've seen Christianity weaponized. And so I want to hear how, what they've experienced or what they've seen that led them to that conclusion. And then from there, show them the distinction between the injustice of man and the justice of God. Um, And because God is for justice, God is pro-justice. And you cannot have justice without truth. Truth is a prerequisite for justice. So if you dismiss uh, uh, absolute truth, you also um, undermine justice. And so I want to talk to them about like, um, talk to them about the justice of God and how we may not get justice here, but I trust in an eternal justice uh, because uh, I, I hope in a just God. And so those are some of the things that I that I like to share. And also, you know, as African-Americans, we experience grave injustices. And I think about all the injustices my ancestors endured and how they never got justice. And that's one of the reasons I trust in the justice to come, that I fight for justice here and now, but I also trust in the justice to come because that's the justice that my ancestors need. And also the people who don't get justice here, the the legal system is is not sufficient uh, for the justice we need. And so um, that's kind of some of the ways I address that question. Earlier, you mentioned um, that many people come to the space of apologetics listeners of apologetics with hurts and trauma that they've experienced it's led them to a place of doubt or skepticism when you think of the black church uh you mentioned uh you referenced christianity being the white man's religion it's one of the stumbling blocks but when you think about the trauma of black people and i think particularly in our current context what are the the one or two traumas major traumas that you see apologetics shedding light on and bringing healing towards uh, as we have these discussions in the context of uh, of the African-American experience? So I think um, the first that comes to mind is identity. There is a big, um, a big need for people to see their value and their identity and worth. And I think there's been such a dehumanization of Black and brown people, especially Black people in the U.S., where we were taught that we were less than human, 
for so long. And so scripture brings identity, identity that we are made in the image of God. And I think, you know, understanding that we are not some different people that are outside of the Genesis narrative. <laughs> we are a part of the human narrative and the human story of creation. Um, and so I think identity is a big one that apologetics can speak to. And also um, I think um, identity in as it relates to value and contribution to the Christian story. So we deal a lot with early African Christian history, talking about Athanasius, Augustine, Clement, um, Perpetua and Felicitas, um, church mothers and fathers that help shape um, Christian doctrine. Um, and so I think that really provides really strong identity and affirmation for so many black and brown people to know I'm a part of this story. I am, <laughs> I'm a part of the narrative and I'm not a other. Um, I'm I'm human made in the image of God as well. Um, I think another one uh, would be this concept, this idea of protection, uh, people feeling unprotected um, because of, of police brutality or other acts of violence against black and brown people. Um, I remember when we were at Southern University and a Hebrew Israelite came and he was hostile at first, but after some time passed, he kind of almost broke down and was like, why am I, why are people like me being shot dead in the street? And he was, uh, tears almost welled up in his eyes. And it was like, man, I see you. Like you, you were hostile at first, but I see what the Trump, what the trauma behind your belief or, or your pain is. And he felt unprotected. He felt like there was nobody caring for him. And I think we have a God in scripture that cares for us so much so that he numbers the hairs on our heads and he cares about our traumas. The Bible says that he bottles our tears, that that care for us, that he cares even about the tears that we forgot we cried, that he remembers. I think we have someone who protects and loves us. And that I think the Christian apologetics helps create that framework for people who feel unprotected and unloved. Yeah. And what, one of the areas that I think, Apologetics both, you know, creates that, that framework for people, but I think sometimes, especially in, in my experience, also uh, excludes people in, in that context is that um, as Christians, we're called to love our neighbors and we're called to love one another. You know, the, the, the two relational aspects of, of the, the love commands that Jesus gives. And yet, um, in the, in the framework of loving loving of neighbor, um, it's often construed as love, love of enemy. And in order to, to, to love your enemy, you have to have an enemy to love. And um, and so I think some, I wonder sometimes about uh, apologetics, which seeks to not just uh, display God's love, but disp to, to actively other people such that they can be and I'm doing scare quotes here for, for the podcast, uh, they can be loved better. Um, and, and certainly this has been my experience and watching on as, as people need to, yeah, as they defend the truth, more scare quotes there. Uh, that means uh, telling people that they are excluded such that then they can just um, love them in scare quotes to re-include them. Um, I'm just interested, is there an, another way to approach that where it doesn't, uh, diminish the the nature of uh, wanting to be uh, promoting right belief, wanting to promote right engagement, wanting to promote um, 
healthy patterns of 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 uh, faith, but does not seem seek to do that exclusionary uh, uh, and then seemingly fake re-inclusionary process. Yeah, I think um, we have to think about the difference between apologetics and polemics. Um, because a lot of people are their their ministry of apologetics is really an attack based ministry where they attack other beliefs um, consistently and they don't get to defend Christianity as much because they're attacking other people's view of 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 their belief and I, I do you know affirm that Christianity is the way the truth and the life um, so I don't want to 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 kind of undermine that thought but i think that we have to be have a certain level of humility to our understanding of god um because it is some of the things that we're claiming that we're asking people to believe is hard we're we're asking people to believe <laughs> that god in flesh came from a virgin like because we've been immersed in christianity so long we don't it doesn't seem odd to us but to an unbelieving culture that is crazy like so there's a certain level of of faith that it takes to believe these claims that are like really really kind of crazy claims to the outside world to anybody who would just make this claim um it just seems hard to some of this seems hard to believe and so i think when i think about that it gives me a, a different posture where it's like i can't attack you um, for saying, well, how can, how dare can you believe that? That makes no sense. When I look at my own faith and I'm like, uh, it's like, if I didn't know any better, this kind of be hard to believe too. But I grew up in church all my life. So it's normal to me because like I went to Sunday school as a kid. So it always was embedded. But if I'm coming from a different context, this does sound strange. And so I think having that level of humility and even sharing the faith story and then understanding why it's hard for other people to believe it creates a level of relationship where I'm not just trying to, like you said, win you to love you. I'm, I'm, we're on this truth and this journey together, this, we're on this journey together to find truth. And whether you accept Christianity or not, I'm still going to be your friend. I'm still going to love you. It's not a prerequisite. Your belief is not a prerequisite for my love. Um, and so that's kind of some of the things that I, Think about uh, as it relates to your question. I hope that answered it. You know, that, that's it's great, and it's really lovely to see, um, especially you know, with the the context of apologetics that it, that there is that nature, and and you've you've sort of displayed that as you've talked about uh, sitting down across um, and having conversations as opposed to across a uh, debating platform, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, but but that display of of you don't need to have right belief in order to receive love. Uh, mm -hmm. I think is is often actually one of the best apologetic um, apologetics for our world in general. Let alone mm -hmm. um, let, let alone in in this space. But uh, I guess one of the other things I'm interested in, in there is um, in a lot of my work. I've been over the years. I've been looking at uh, religious extremism and mm -hmm. not just extremism, but um, not just religious extremism, I should say, but uh, just extremism in general. Uh, and so um, one of the areas with that, though, is the various different approaches, such as the availability bias. And so people are more likely to believe things that they hear more often and, and things like this, which is why we have the, you know, the rise of, uh, of, um, 
of various mythology about everything from um, whether or not uh, Hillary Clinton had a had a a, a, um, a sex parlor in the basement of a pizza store, uh, right through to um, vaccines are uh, giving you five five G nano chips, uh, right through mm. to um, man didn't even uh, you know the, the moon landing didn't even occur and things like this. It's a lot of the availability bias that goes along with this, uh, and so in in many ways what we we still want to have a, a an approach which uh, does prioritize. Uh, truth and right belief, uh, and I'm I'm interested in your approach to to balancing or, or to, to how do you hold both of those things uh, in the in the scales if you like uh, where it is uh, I'll I'll love you no matter what your belief is but gee I really like you to have some right belief <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I think you know that's through uh, courageous conversations I mean um, and I'm not talking about our conference I'm just talking about in general having conversations being having where you feel like there's candor and truth can be shared that you can push back on ideas but it's not in a way that's not with gentleness and respect one thing I lament about the way apologetics has grown in this culture is it has lacked the gentleness and respect that first Peter calls for and so I argue that if you don't have gentleness and respect you're not doing apologetics you're doing something else And I think as long as we keep gentleness and respect at the forefront and a genuinely, genuinely, genuine love for the person, you're you're going to be able to to lean in and press in and be their friend no matter what. Um, However, you're still going to be able to share truth and the, the way you share truth, I think, makes them more receptive to hearing it, knowing that when I know a person cares for me, I'm more open to hearing it. And then also being as we're as when we do share truth, being winsome. Um, I almost I always think about David and and Nathan and David and Nathan have a relationship. David respects Nathan and he knows he's a prophet. But when he goes to Nathan to when Nathan goes to David to confront him about sin, he just doesn't say, David, you messed up. He doesn't call him out immediately. Even with relationship, he still tells a story. And so if even in the context of relationship, a story was still needed in that relationship to call out David, um, how much more in our interaction with friends and strangers do we need to maybe use parables? Do we need to think winsomely about how we tell tough truths? Um, I think all of those things are important. So, Yeah, this kind of hits on something else we've talked about, too. Um, This is a little bit of a a Kierkegaardian critique um, uh, that can be applied to apologetics, uh, where one of the things that he was concerned about is that if you try to defend the faith on, quote unquote, objective terms, and, and what I mean by objective is here's all of the external facts about, you know, what's going on, um, and you try to evidence stack and just pile them on top of one another, the idea, and this is really expressed by a lot of big name uh, apologists, contemporary apologists, right? If you, uh, you'll eventually get evidence that will demand a verdict, right? You stack Mm -hmm. it high enough, and then someone's going to then sort of fall into faith. But we understand faith and everybody, including evidentialists and classical apologetics, apologists, still understand faith as this personal commitment and relationship to Jesus Christ. So they recognize that there's this 
subjective element. And by subjective, I mean my subject, my person. It's a personal thing. But there's a question that Kierkegaard asks of, can you can you get to the subjective through the objective? So if I evidence stack, will that actually tip me into this subjective appropriation of faith? Or will I just endlessly be stacking evidence? Because uh, mm-hmm. there's always one more piece to stack, right? Um, so I, you mentioned the debates. And I think about um, William Lane Craig had a famous debate with Anthony Flew. Mm-hmm. And after that, Anthony Flew confessed that he was convinced that some sort of God existed. Mm-hmm. He was in no way convinced that the, it was the Christian God. And he certainly didn't. He certainly was not becoming a Christian. <laughs> but mm-hmm. he did say, OK, I, I can concede to a divine being existing rationally. Right. And I keep thinking, okay, but that's not really what we're after in apologetics, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't matter that he agreed rationally that a divine being exists that didn't do him any, he's no better off now than he was before, Mm -hmm. you know, eternally speaking. Right. So I think your posture of looking at the whole person from the beginning is not starting with the subject object divide, hoping that one Mm -hmm. will lead to the other, but it's saying, no, we're starting from the position of the whole person, which is subject and object together. Mm -hmm. And that's how we're dialoguing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, and I mean, a lot of my journey, even my journey into apologetics, you know, it was kind of stacking the deck of what my professor said, what the apologists were saying and seeing, and that still wasn't like the connection point, like what pushed me over the ledge and say, I'm going to believe this was one night when I got home, I was crying and I played the Bible lottery. Like, I'm like, God, I still don't know. Like my professor saying this, I'm listening to apologists and they're saying this. And it's like, like you're saying, Amber, it's like one, one thing against another. And you're always like, there's always like another piece and you're always going to be saying, well, I get that, but what about this? And so I'm playing Bible lottery and I'm like, God, show me something. And I open my Bible and it opens to the John passage where <laughs> Jesus said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And so many people left. And then he looked at Peter and said, will you also go? And he said, where can I go? You have the words of eternal life. And in that moment, something clicked for me. Like, no matter how much evidence there is and how much stuff I don't understand, where can I go? You are the way, truth, and the light. And so I think that you do need mixed with evidence, that experience and, un- and that belief, like that I might not have all the answers, but I'm trusting in the one who is the answer. And so I think that you, you're spot on there. Like you can't, I don't think you can like just, keep stacking evidence. I mean, maybe some, some people may come to faith like that, but I think it's rare. You still have to have that moment where something connects because salvation is still the work of the spirit. So the spirit has to do its work. And so I think we can move out obstacles for the spirit. And if, if somebody's glasses are foggy, we could try to help, (laughs) wipe some of the fog off, but it's still, salvation is still going to be the work of the spirit, no matter how much evidence we get. And it seems like too, a lot of your work is opening up possibilities for people to believe, you know, whereas before there might've been this obstacle of, I think that Christianity is a white man's religion. You know, mm-hmm. you're saying, no, look, it's not, that's not even true historically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not even true right now. Like, look at what, God has done through history and who he has used to do that. Mm -hmm. And so 
instead of sort of beating people into assenting to something you're saying like, no, there's a possibility of belief here. And there's more than that. There's a possibility of you as a believer here, like you, Mm -hmm. as you are, as God created you to be a part, a very valuable part of the story. Um, so I see it as, as opening up of a space for people more than kind of constraining people like, okay, I've given you the evidence. If you're not going to believe, then you must be (laughs) dishonest intellectually or something. Yeah. Cause people have, they have valid questions. And I think that sometimes people act like if a person doesn't believe it's because they just are being dishonest with the evidence. And it's like, no, not necessarily. Like, <laughs> you know, people have valid questions and, and valid concerns. And then some of the texts they look at and they're like, man, this is really hard to believe. It's not even the people in Christianity that they have an issue with. They have an issue with some challenging parts of scripture. And so to, to grant them that, that right to say, yes, this is hard to believe. Um, I believe it, but I understand how you could not believe it. I think it's important to do because that helps people to know that they're not crazy. Yeah, I I think to what you said, Lisa and Amber, the the thing that keeps coming to my mind is that the gospel confounds the wise. It's not a dismissal of wisdom. It's to say that it's beyond wisdom, but yet the tools of wisdom can be used by the working of the spirit to bring about change, right? And, And ultimately, points to the sovereignty of God. So like there's these building blocks, right? Like God is yet in control despite what tools he gives us to advance the gospel. And this is one means, right, to advance, but that personal belief, right, that that, that ascension to, to give of one's will towards the work of Christ uh, takes a long time. And I think also, I think speaking to, uh, I can imagine like in our Western apologetic culture, there's this sense of immediacy tied to intellect, which also is exclusionary, right? And so I think mm-hmm. like that, even that 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 model, um, it's 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 funny because sometimes I think there's a contradiction between uh, an apologetic framework towards the gospel, and then I look at a Pauline framework where like Paul seems in so many ways to both use his wisdom, but then also rejects his wisdom at the same time. And there's this mm-hmm. conundrum that we have to face um, whenever we're in a space. Um, of intellectually arguing or intellectually debating uh, in the, uh, in this uh, moment of trying to win people over. But I guess the question is, win them to what means and to what end? And that always has to be at the forefront. So encouraged by the work that you all are doing and keeping that uh, at the forefront. And I think particularly when I think of the Black church experience, um, I think if that is prominently placed in the forefront, you gain more trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think of my own tradition of Black Pentecostal tradition, there's already uh, historically has been skepticism towards areas of theology, you know, areas of apologetics, not because there isn't much to glean from it, but the change in which we actually approach uh, our faith once we come Mm -hmm. back into those same settings. Um, So I guess a question that comes to my mind is, as as African-American brothers and sisters step into this space from traditional Black spaces, what tools do they need to go back to their churches and show the good of, of apologetics to actually market it well that doesn't leave a sour taste in people's mouths? Yeah, I think one of the most helpful things is to affirm all the ways Black churches have contributed to Christian history in rich ways. Uh, and I think also affirm the work that the leader is doing. Because I think 
many people who learned apologetics, whether black and white, when they go back to their churches, they almost have this air of arrogance where it's kind of like, you didn't teach me anything. Let me help you understand like what real theology is, because I took a a class at a seminary or Bible college. Now I know the truth and you need to get with the program. So just coming with the humility to say, hey, I've learned this and it really helped me with my own doubts. And I know if I'm having some of these doubts, maybe some people in the congregation may be having some of these. And I'm not saying what you're doing is is insufficient, but I found these helpful as helpful supplements. And maybe going through it with your pastor first, and then saying, hey, do you think like maybe we can co-teach this together or, or somebody, maybe I can with the Christian education pastor, like go through this um, or get a group together in the church so we could go through it in a small group. I think that's a way where you honor the leadership that people don't feel threatened, like that you're you're about to create these little monsters, um, but that you're saying like, hey, what you're saying is good. I appreciate it. I think affirmate, starting with affirmation is key and then saying, but this has helped me in ways in my own personal doubts that you might, because, you know, so many African-Americans are maybe first generation from college. So the generation before didn't struggle with some of these philosophical, intellectual uh things in the same way because of the lack of exposure. So saying, hey, this was my experience when I went off to college. These are some questions. Um, I think it would help the next generation and people uh, that are that older. This is for from the boomers to, to Gen Z. I think this is helpful. So I think that's a way that we can all posture when we learn information to going back to our churches. That probably would be more more uh, accepted and affirmed than the other ways that people are usually doing. <laughs> well, I want to ask kind of the question in the opposite direction um, in terms of what can the black church offer the broader apologetics community um, in, in, in particular, what I'm thinking about is one of the big topics in apologetics is the problem of evil. Um, And I've benefited personally so much from reading Black theologians on the problem of suffering. Um, This was something that I grew frustrated myself in seminary in the problem of evil courses, right? Because (laughs) they can be very ethereal, very, we're just going to parse the logic out here. But when you're talking about the problem of suffering, um, you're not talking about something as if it's this removed theoretical problem that you're trying to parse out, right? It's a very personal thing. Um, And I think about the very rich resources that there are within the Black church context because that context has wrestled with the problem of evil in very unique ways. And so I'm wondering if if you guys have done anything in the Jude 3 project about the problem of evil, how you framed it and, and yeah, what the broader apologetical world could learn from it. Yeah. So uh, recently, uh, well, the end of last year, we had our Through the Eyes of Color virtual conference because we couldn't have our in-person Courageous Conversation conference. And that in-person aspect of conversation from opposite, I felt like needed to be in person and didn't need to be virtual to uh, keep the compassion part um intact um but so we had the throughout of color and we had one on navigating suffering and the focus really was about god being present with us in suffering 
and that he's there, that suffering, <laughs> suffering is an ever-present reality, but we have a God that's with us in the midst of our suffering. And I think that's a constant message of Black churches, that God is with us. He's here with us. He's not somewhere far off that and disconnected, but he's with us. He cares and that he will deliver. Now, deliverance may come in this life or the life to come, but it's very hopeful hope in the one that's greater than our suffering. And I don't think that's what apologetics focuses on enough. It's kind of just making the argument for why we have suffering because we have free will. And one can cognitively understand that, but when they're in the midst of deep suffering, they don't want to hear that. The best the best thing in suffering to have is presence, presence of uh, the divine and presence of people. And so to, God sits with us in suffering and we need other people to sit with us in suffering. And I think that's what the black church does so well. And they understand that sometimes the best answer for suffering is silence and presence. And I know, and classical apologetics is about like helping people to see why suffering exists, which doesn't help when you're, when you're crying and when you're trying to grieve. Um, so related to that topic, I've, once heard a theologian say that one of the best apologetics is actually the enduring faith of Black communities. And I'm wondering if that's something that has come up in some of what Jude 3, the Jude 3 project has done. Yeah. Um, recently, we were talking to Dr. Lisa Bowens. Uh, she's a New Testament professor at Princeton, and she has the uh, book on uh African-American readings of Paul. And uh, she's going to be at Courageous Conversations this year, so I'm really excited to have her. Um, but she talked about like the enduring faith of slaves. And I, you know, I made the point, like so many people are falling away now because they think just it's too much. And I'm just like, we can look to the slaves and how they believed in God still beyond suffering. They called out the misuse of their slave masters. So they weren't ignorant to the fact that their slave masters were preaching a different gospel. They were calling it out, but they still placed their hope in God. And they still knew that this is a God that can be trusted. And I feel like that's within itself an apologetic. Like they embody the message. That's why I always say, like, there are uh, in Ergen Canner's book, um, Encyclopedia of Popular Apologetics, he says that there are two two strands of apologetics, incarnational, informational. And so we always get stuck on informational and incarnational is just as important. It is the embodiment of the message and not just the, the intellectual uh, arguments you give. And I always think of it as two wings on the plane. I always say, if you're on a plane, which wing would you rather have, the left or the right one? And nobody answers because they know that you're not going anywhere if you just have one. Apologetics is the same way. If you don't have the information and the embodiment, the incarnation, you're not really going to have an effective gospel witness. Yeah. Well, amen to that. Thank you so much, Lisa. We really appreciate having you on and appreciate all the wonderful work that you're doing with the Jude 3 Project. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy. Thank you.